And, uh, but we're looking at this whole picture of judgment in Israel. It's come all the way to the place where the people are going to be judged. And this morning, as we jump into this judgment day in Israel, I want us to look at three questions. And, and I pray that these questions would help us to understand why were the people of Israel being judged? What, what was the reason? What was the purpose? And how did we get here? Well, we're going to see that. I, I was cracking up because uh, sometimes if we don't keep up with where we are in the scripture, we don't understand how we got here. A lot of people, uh, and I don't advise this at all, but a lot of people that aren't in God's word they pray for something and then they do this practice where they just sort of open the Bible up and point and say, okay, what does God want to show me? And uh, I don't advise that as a, a biblical way of hearing from God, but sometimes we read the Bible like that and we don't know how we got where we are. And if you open up to 2 Kings chapter 17 and you read about Israel going into this place, it reminded me of, I can't sleep on planes. I've always tried to, I just can't do it. And uh, I was sitting next to these people um, that were flying to see their uh, children in Amsterdam. And from Atlanta, we were flying. And uh, about four hours into the flight, the gentleman two seats away from me, he stuck his head back and he cranked out and he was going at it. I mean, he was snoring and it was a thing to behold. And I would look over at him like, this is amazing. And he sat there forever. And, and when we find it for about three or four hours, he was out like that. Well, you know, they got the flight tracker in front of you where you can see your jet, where you're at. And like, it's painful to watch that if you can't sleep because it never moves. But that guy woke up and he had to be shocked how we got where we were because he was gone for four hours. And then he looks and he's amazed. But how do we get to this place of Israel being in judgment? And we read about it. Let's read the opening verses in 2 Kings 17. In the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. And he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up. Shalmanazar, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. He now is paying taxes to this king of Assyria. He's the vassal, and in the vassal relationship, he is now paying his fee and his tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. When we look at this question, how did we get here? We have to understand three things about the judgment of God. There was a judgment warning, a judgment warning. And we see this in the Old Testament. We see it in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 23 it says, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, 
and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, Deuteronomy 4.25, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. One other passage I want you to be familiar with just to see this judgment warning. This judgment was a warning all through the Old Testament. And really, when we get to the end of Deuteronomy, we see the blessings and the cursings of the law. And after giving the law, Moses had declared to the people that if they obeyed God, they would reap the blessings. But if they followed in disobedience, they would go into captivity. In Deuteronomy 31, 16, and the Lord said to Moses, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them and the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then it says in verse 17, then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured." And many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. So how did we get here? We see a judgment warning in the Old Testament, but we also see a judgment plea even in the text that we're looking at today in 2 Kings 17, a judgment plea. And what we find here, if you look at verse 13, this is the pivot point where the people are walking in sin. And you look at the, the prophets to Israel. They would be like Hosea and Amos. You've got some overlapping ones of like Isaiah, Jeremiah. But in 2 Kings 17, 13, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet, And every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers that I sent to you by my servant, the prophets. In Hosea chapter 14, which is a a critical book to understand the prophets that were communicating to the people of Israel. In Hosea 14 verse 1, listen to these words. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. We go back to the story of 1 Kings, and after the the kingdom of Solomon, and we saw the wickedness of his son Rehoboam. And remember, he was the guy that was so smart for his own good that he rejected wise, older counsel, and he listened to all the, 
knuckleheads, his buddies, and they listened to them, and he gained power, and it got to his head. And what did he do? He led the people into idolatry. And Jeroboam was the first of the kings of Israel all the way down to Hosea, and there's not one godly king in the entire line of the kings of the north of Israel. They all followed the same path. And yet in the midst of their sin, God raised up prophets. And the prophets acted as divine lawyers to state the case of God before the people urging them to repent. And this is the warning plea. In Isaiah chapter 1, we read in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. In Isaiah 1, verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And then it says, If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. In verse 20 of Isaiah 1, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we see a judgment warning, a judgment plea, but now we see a judgment realized. And here it is. We read it in verse 5 of 2 Kings 17. The king of Assyria invaded all the land, came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. Uh, This is a shocking reality. Um, I was reading in a a one-study Bible, just getting some background information on this siege. And according to Assyrian records, the Assyrians deported 27,290 inhabitants of Israel to distant locations. And their way of doing this was they wanted to spread the people out. They wanted to mix them amongst other peoples and they wanted to completely obliterate any sense of familiarity they had with their culture. And we see this. I, I want to show you a, a map. Um, and, and Joy, it's the second map. But I want to show you like just a sense of, I know that means nothing to you possibly looking at that picture. But in the bottom left of the screen, you're dealing with Israel. And I want you to look at that line that goes all the way up to the north and then to the east. And by the time you get way over there to the northeast, you're dealing with the area of Assyria. And you deal with the reality of these people and the judgment that God was bringing and the deportation of these 10 tribes to literally be scattered across the world at that time. But let's look at something else here. We not only see, how did we get here? We see a judgment that was warned, plead to the people to avoid, and then realized. But how does the text describe the God of Israel? And I say that in a specific way, because what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is that the God of Israel is the God of the world. But a lot of people saw the God of Israel as simply specific to that region. But the God of Israel is the God of the Bible. And what we read as we go through chapter 17 is we begin to see 
some of the characteristics of God that are specifically pointed out in this chapter. Many people and their biggest hangups with God has to do with the judgment of God. When you deal with scoffers and you deal with mockers, many times one of the tactics is to go to the Old Testament and find accusation against the God of the Bible because of the judgments that are brought in the Old Testament. And I want us to understand something. If we understand God's judgment correctly, we have to see it against the backdrop of his character. If we don't understand the character of God, we will be tempted to question the actions of God. But the scripture reveals who he is. And it's not until we understand his character that we can properly assess and understand his judgments. The first characteristic I really believe that this chapter is pointing us to is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. If you look at verse 2, notice what it said. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Hosea didn't follow after some of the practices of other kings in Israel, but he was an evil man. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And notice this phrase here. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the question I want you to ask yourself is, what does God reveal about his character through the phrase, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? I believe there's many observations we could pull from this phrase, but I'll give you a few that I really believe are evident here. Number one, the power of God. Because when the scripture refers to the sight of the Lord, it speaks of not only the omnipresence of God. It speaks of the omniscience of God. It speaks of every aspect of God's power, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, because he sees all things. He's aware of all things. But, but another part here is interesting, is that we're looking here at what God discerns as evil. And this speaks about his purity. It speaks about his righteous standard over the universe. I tell you, like one of the, the greatest challenges of the culture that we're in today is that so many people will say things like this. Well, that may be your standard, but it's not my standard. But the problem ultimately falls to this. Is there an ultimate standard by which men and women, boys and girls are judged in the world. And the Bible says specifically that there is. It's the standard of a holy God. And the holiness of God is revealed in that this evil that was taking place was determined to be evil in light of his perfect standard and his separation from man. When we think about someone who is holy, we think about someone who is set apart. They're set apart. And how is God set apart from the world? He's not like us. He's holy, he's pure, and he's righteous, and he's set apart. So here we see this righteous standard that he has over the universe. We see his right to be the judge, and we see his authority to rule over all. 
Hosea did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But as we keep going through this passage, I want us to notice not only do we see the holiness of God, we see the gracious kindness of God, the kindness of God. And there's many ways that we see this kindness. Um, We see it, I think, originally in the reminder of what God had done for these people in verse 7. Look at 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. And notice what it says about God. Who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and then it says, and they had feared other gods. He rescued them. That's one of the ways that he shows his kindness and his grace. But not only does he show his kindness in rescuing them in the past, he showed his kindness in his warning to them. And we saw this a little bit earlier, but look at verse 11 and 12. It says, and there they made offerings on all the high places the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. And then in verse 13, yet the Lord, we read this a couple minutes ago, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer. When we see the prophets warning to the people, it's a reminder of the kindness and the graciousness of God. In his holiness, he shows his kindness not only in the redemption that he brought them up out of Egypt, but in his warning to them, in his revelation to them. You see, when we look at this, it speaks about his commandments. It speaks about his warning. You see, it says, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers. God had revealed himself to the people and shared with them his way. He had shared with them his purpose. He had shared with them his commandments. And I want you to think about the kindness and the grace of God in his revelation to us. We see not only his uh, kindness in the redemption from Egypt, his kindness in the warning that he gives, his kindness in the revelation that he gives. But then in verse 15, they despised his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. He had made a covenant with them. I mean, you look at all of these ways in which we see the kindness of God, a kindness, a grace to rescue, to warn, to reveal, to make a covenant It reminds me of Romans chapter 2, verse 4, when Paul says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So we see the holiness of God. We see the kindness of God. But that brings us to the reality of a God who is just, the justice and the judgment of God, the judgment of God. God's holiness demands that he judge sin in order to be just. And we see his justice and we see his judgment in many places in this chapter. Look at verse 18. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. 
None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Look at verse 19 and 20. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. Verse 20, look at the justice of God. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. You see it in verse 23. Until the Lord did what? Removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria this day. Romans says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But let's look at the third question. Not only do we see how did we get here, we not only see how the character of God is revealed in chapter 17, but I want us to notice now, in order to get a sense of how we got to judgment day, the question we've got to answer is, how did the people live in response to God? And this is, this is a chapter that's filled with examples of the response of the people to the things of God. In the first five verses of chapter 17, we see yet again, modeled by the king of Israel, that they pursued earthly saviors. They, they pursued earthly saviors. They when they were in trouble, we saw it in the previous chapters, 15 and 16. When they were in trouble, what was taking place is they were turning to man versus turning to God. We read in verse 2, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. He, it doesn't indicate exactly the ways in which he was different. He didn't go to the extreme some of the previous kings had gone, but he was evil. And we read in verse 3, against him came up Shalmanazar, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal, paid him tribute. He's paying him this tax, but then he gets in trouble because in verse 4, but the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt. Now he begins to make a deal with Egypt, and a lot of people think that this guy was Osirkan the fourth. And if you take the name Osirkan, in the middle of that you get an S O. And many people think that when he says so, it's speaking of his nickname, Osirkan the fourth. And so what he does here is he goes to Egypt's king, and he's seeking help. And Assyria finds out, and Assyria is not pleased. And so now what takes place is that this begins the cycle into this devastating judgment. I want to read you a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 2. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. And what is happening as we look at this story and this recount of the narrative is that you're basically seeing that the king of Israel has more confidence in earthly saviors than he does in the God 
who redeemed them out of Egypt. Rather than run to the God of Israel, rather than run to Jehovah, rather than to realize that he's the only way that they can be secure, he's seeking man-made answers. We talked about this last time. It's subtle, isn't it? We can see these similarities and these subtleties in our own heart and life. Apart from the grace of God, we always will run after human answers. We'll run after human saviors, human human means to try to find our salvation rather than find it in Christ and Christ alone. But this is a symptom of a heart that is in rebellion against God. He's seeking earthly saviors. But not only was he seeking earthly saviors, look at the way in which the people walked in idolatry. You see this all through chapter 17. Well, we'll focus on verse 7 down to verse 23. And what we find, and we're just going to briefly overview this, but look at verse 7, and let's start noticing the ways that the people responded to God and how they walked in idolatry against him. It says in verse 7, had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. And look at verse 8. And walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. They were conformed to the people that were around them. They walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out. Last time we looked at 2 Kings three weeks ago, one of the questions that I asked you as we were looking at chapter 16 is, is like, are you conformed to the world more than you are transformed by the reality of who God is? And, and we see that they were more enamored with the ways of the world. They, they were so uh, conformed to the customs of the people. And the customs of the people affected their response to God. We read in verse 9, And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. Have you ever thought about the reality that before sin is public, sin is private? Before sin becomes public, Sin always begins internally. But inward sins that are private slowly manifest into public sin. I tell you, when we think about our life, as I think about my kids and I think about my own story and testimony and my own life in walking with God as a Christian, and one of the things I'll often tell them, I'll say, look, you can never put a value on a clean conscience before God. And I've told him before, I was like, I've tolerated hidden sin in my life before, and I've been miserable, and I've been filled with a lack of joy. And, I, and, and I'll tell you here, and I want to share it with you, you know, like you may be with us today, and you are playing the part perfectly in your role in this community. You're respected, you're looked at as a nice person, you're looked at it as an ethical person, a church-going person, but it could be today that you're tolerating secret sin, and only you know what that is. But I want to encourage you today 
These things are written for our instruction, and the Holy Spirit, in his kindness, brings conviction to our lives. And today, if you're walking in secret sin, repent of that sin. Look to Christ. Because I can guarantee you right now, if you are thinking in your heart, that's me, I'm walking in secret sin, you're miserable. You're looking after things seeking to satisfy you in ways that are never going to fulfill your desires. And you're neglecting the source my people have forsaken and they've hewn for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water, the prophet Jeremiah says. They've hewn for themselves cisterns that can hold no water. And so here they were walking in private sin, but then it became very public. They built for themselves high places. Do you remember when they came into the land back in 1 Kings chapter 3 or so? Do you remember they inherited a lot of the high place altars? And they sought in a dangerous way to consecrate those high place altars to the God of Israel. This is different. This is... um, different type of high place. They had built new altars. I found this quote, the Israelites built new raised altars in the Canaanite pattern after the temple was constructed. These high places were in all the habitations of Israel. From small fortified structures to large garrison cities, the high place altars were on wooded hills with images representing the false gods. And there they set up for themselves pillars and ashram. And we studied this. The pillars and the ashram representing all of the pagan practices of idolatry. And they did it on every high hill, under every green tree, according to the customs of the pagans. And there they made offerings, verse 11, on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things provoking the Lord to anger. And there were so many different practices that were immoral, that were connected with these pagan deities, that were connected with these idolatrous ways. And here we see that they weren't observant because the people that had practiced these things had faced the judgment of God, yet the people of Israel saw these practices, were so enticed by them, and rather than trust and follow the God of Israel, they turned to foreign gods. And look at verse 12, and they served idols of which the Lord said to them, you shall not do this. Remember of Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And then Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. God warned them, verse 14, but they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. And and you see more of this idolatrous practice as you go into verse 15. 
They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings he gave them. Here it is again. They went after false idols and became false. We'll come back to that. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And then verse 16, they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. You go all the way back to Aaron. You go all the way back to Mount Sinai. You go all the way back to King Jeroboam. And what are they doing? They're following after idolatry. They're forsaking God. They're abandoning all that God had shown them. And they made an Asherah. And, but this is amazing. They worshiped all the hosts of heaven. They are now into astrology. They are now into the stars, the worship of the stars. They serve Baal. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. You remember Deuteronomy there was a warning, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. But what did they do? They, had, they neglected everything. And verse 17 is, just gets tragic. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens. They were into astrology. They were into sorcery. They were into witchcraft. And they sold themselves to sin in their evil provoking him to anger. Verse 19, more about their idolatrous practices. Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but did what? Walked in the customs that Israel had introduced over and over and over. You see, not only did they pursue earthly saviors. So what are we doing here? We're seeing how did they get here? We're looking at the judgment, but then we're looking at, okay, what was the people's response to God? And what have we seen so far? They pursued earthly saviors. They walked in idolatry. But then we see underneath this, they rejected God's word. They rejected God's word. I, I was, uh, I flew into, I, I left Bucharest at about, uh, I got up about four o'clock in the morning on Sunday night, Monday morning. It was about eight o'clock here and y'all were about to go to bed. And I was getting up and uh, I got to the airport. Everything was good to go. I was going to be back at about 520 that afternoon. And I flew into Amsterdam at about 835. And I had a flight that was going out at 1030. And little did I know, I would not leave Amsterdam for 48 more hours. And uh, I had four cancellations. And there's some humor in this story. I didn't have a bag. I was in the airport constantly. And um, I, at one point, was sitting, and, and, and have you ever been at a gate when there's a flight and they make an announcement about a delay and there's this collective groan? It's sort of, it's sort of uh, interesting. It's sort of fun. Everybody's just like, aww, <laughs> the, whole, the whole group together. And, and I was sitting there, and I was uh, reflecting on the fact that uh, this wasn't going to happen that day. And, and I started noticing there was this announcement 
And um, there was this, what do you call those things you get on to help you make a lot of progress? They're not, they're not escalators. They're like a conveyor belt for humans, right? You're walking on them. And, and there was this announcement, and there was this computer-generated voice, and this lady was going, mind your step. Mind your step. Mind your step. And I was like thinking, that is so weird. It's not watch your step, it's mind your step. And, and everybody, and I just kept watching it, and I was thinking, wait a minute, I'm either going to sit here and listen to this woman for the 826th time or move because this is driving me nuts. But I'll tell you what it did. I heard that warning so many times that the next time I was on that conveyor belt, guess what I did? I minded my step. <laughs> I got near the end. And I was like, wait a minute. If this lady is annoying everybody in this airport, this must be serious. I need to watch what I'm doing here. But the people of Israel did not heed the warning of God. It says in verse 14, they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord. When you look at verse 14, the word stubborn, it, it speaks of a, the back of a person's neck. A stiff neck in this lexicon says, indicates an obstinate, stubborn attitude, a rebellious person or people. This morning, I pray that we would all say, God, is my heart humble and receptive to your truth or am I obstinate? Am I stiff-necked? The people of Israel were stiff-necked. They were rejecting the ways of God. They were following after the people before them, their fathers. And you know what's amazing? The people of Israel are described here. It says, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God? They didn't believe in the Lord their God. And their lack of belief is always going to be illustrated by the responses to the word of God. Look at verse 15. What's the response to the word? They despised his statutes, despised them. They abandoned him. The word abandon means to forsake, to leave. They didn't follow the ways of God. Uh, earlier, it says something very important. Look at verse 15. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. And then it says, they went after false idols. But notice the next phrase. And became false. Now, what does that mean? This really intrigued me. What does it mean to become false? It means to feel, to be filled with false hopes. It means to become vain, empty. Now notice this. It's speaking to us here because it shows us that those who reject God's word and statutes become vain in their pursuits. I tell you, my younger crowd here today, the world will tempt you to forsake God and to follow the customs of this world and to be enamored with 
not only popularity, but success in the world's eyes. It will teach you a worldview that is completely contrary to what the scripture says. But God's word says this, if you choose to go the ways of the world, you will ultimately go after false idols. And as a reality, you will become false. You'll be an individual who abandons the truth, despises the word, becomes stiff-necked, but here's the sad, sad reality, that you will be an individual who is filled with false hopes. An individual who put their trust in the world, who put their trust in functional earthly saviors, and as a result, experiences the vanity and the foolishness of the world. So how did we get here? God's word's clear in warning, in plea. We see the reality. What do we learn about the God of Israel in the text? We see his holiness. We see his kindness. We see his justice. What did the people do in response to God? We see that they went after functional earthly saviors. They walked in idolatry. They rejected the word of God. But I want to leave you with this this morning. What are some key lessons? How do we process this 2,000 years? I mean, more than that, 2,700 years later. I pray one thing that we, we learn here is that human beings give an account before a holy God. How should we respond to that? Uh, you know, and, and being in Second Peter for hours upon hours over these last two weeks, I pray that one of the passages that just stood out to me was Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. What is our dilemma? We will face the judgment of God apart from his grace. And so what do we need? We need a sinless Savior to be our substitute. In 2 Peter 1, Peter writes, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning, you're either going to be an individual who stands in your own righteousness or stands in the righteousness of Jesus. You're either going to be an individual who depends on your own work or depends upon the work of Christ. Many people see the Bible as a wonderful book to give ethical ramifications for culture and the world. That's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that in our own righteousness, we face the judgment and the holiness of God. But God loved us so much, he sent his son to be our righteousness, to be our substitute. And it's only those by grace through faith who depend on Christ that can stand in confidence before a holy God. It's good news. We read in 2 Corinthians a few weeks ago, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, listen to this beautiful truth. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Just as the people of Israel faced the judgment of God, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The Bible says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But today, friend, I pray you'd understand the grace and the mercy that's in Jesus Christ. 
And by grace through faith, if you trust in him, he is your righteousness. Your account is credited because of the righteousness of our good and faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But second of all, I pray today you would look at the people of Israel, not only understanding the reality of judgment, the reality of the holiness of God, but I pray as you look at their idolatry and their rejection of the word of God, I pray you'd realize today your desperate need for the grace of Jesus in day-to-day Christian living. I've been uh, a passage that has become so dear to my heart recently. I want you to listen to what 2 Peter 1 verse 2 3 and 4 say, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. One way you could hear this message incorrectly is you could leave and say to yourself, you know what? We need to avoid the mistakes of Israel. We need not to look to people to save us. We need not to look to idols to model our life after. We need not to reject God. But if you don't see it in light of your need, that response could simply be a moralistic answer to the devastating problem of the human heart. You could simply see yourself needing to do better or live more correctly than the people of Israel in their sin. But but I I pray you'd see something. Your heart is as prone to wickedness as the people of Israel's. What do you need? What do I need? We not only need a sinless substitute. We not only need to stand confidently in the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to our account but we need the transforming power of God in order to live pleasing and acceptable to him. And this is where I got so excited looking at this because in verse three of second Peter one, his divine power, the divine power of Christ has granted to us all things that pertain to life. And then he uses this word and godliness. Now, if you take that word godliness and you look at the Greek, you know what that word comes down to? It means to worship well. Now, think with me. In order for you to live differently than the people of Israel that went through this judgment, you need to worship well. But in order to worship well, what do you need? You need divine grace that is only in Jesus. And what we learn about the beauty of salvation is that those who depend on the righteousness of Christ and not their own, not only are in right standing with God, but now because of his grace are given everything they need for life and godliness in Jesus Christ. So as we look at 2 Kings 17, it's humbling, isn't it? I pray that we would see the people of Israel and we would see ourselves and it would remind us of our need of salvation. It would remind us of our need of grace in Jesus to walk faithful 
and to walk obedient and to walk as a true worshiper. But this morning, that is our hope. That is our hope. I was thinking of some things about grace. Today, I pray that we would, the last verse in 2 Peter, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm doing a 2 Peter, 2 Kings combo, but this is what I've been looking at for two weeks. <laughs> but the last verse in 2 Peter is, uh, is just amazing. If you got your Bible, turn over there. We're gonna, we'll close our Bibles there. And 2 Peter, look at what he tells him as he's wrapping this up. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge. There's many things that the Bible says about grace. We're not only to grow in it, we're not to receive it in vain. We're not to nullify it. We're to be strengthened by it. We're to set our hope fully on it. We are to stand firm in it. So this morning, as we see Judgment Day in Israel, by looking at the text, we see not only a warning of judgment, a plea, we see this realization of judgment, we see the character of God and why judgment is a reality, the holiness of God, the kindness of God. We see the people's response this morning, I pray you'd see the futility of self-righteousness, the futility of trying to make yourself right before a holy God by living a better and more productive life will ultimately lead you to the same place. It'll lead you to a place of judgment before God. But today, there's hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the reminder of your grace. I thank you, Lord, that as we look at the dilemma of the people, we see ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that every Christian here today would see the glorious salvation that you have brought them in Christ. But I pray, oh God, that if there's people here that have never seen their need of a savior. I pray by looking closer at the judgment that you brought upon Israel and the reality of your holiness. I pray today they would see the beautiful grace that is in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray today that they would see that he's the only answer to their need. I pray, oh God, we would see that your grace in Christ Jesus has made it possible for us to live in a way that's completely different from that of the people of Israel. I pray that we would see that your grace has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And oh God, I pray we would learn from the sins of the people of Israel. And Lord, as we're tempted to look in different directions, as we're tempted to follow after idols of our heart, I pray we would see the good grace and kindness that you bring. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.